Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 94. Today we spoke to Steve Guerra, innovation specialist, former NFL coach, CEO of the Gaines Group, leaders in sport consultant and former Marine. Steve has quite an amazing resume and story in high performance and sports. From a start with the Marine Corps, post 9-11, twerking in the NFL with the Browns and Chargers, to a sports sabbatical where he gained a depth of experience across different organisations in Europe, such as Chelsea, Barcelona, Real Madrid, McLaren F1. We opened the dialogue with insight into Steve's life in American football and what he's taken from this pandemic period. We talk about core strengths and core constraints in sports, innovation, and talent development, amongst other interesting topics. According to Steve, sports is the most important of the least important things. So let's elevate it. The Los Angeles Dodgers won their first World Series in 32 years this year. Gaines Group is part of a new joint venture with the Dodgers and their investment arm Elysian Park Ventures called Breakaway, a sport data exchange that creates collects and combines club and athlete data to help clubs better understand and position the athletes. This looks like a real game changer in the world of performance science. Reach out to Steve for more info. Thanks for joining us on our show, Steve. It was a pleasure. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me uh, very much. I uh, I haven't been over to Europe yet this year because uh, as your listeners may or may not know, there's this pandemic going on. So I miss Europe. Uh, I miss traveling. I travel a lot, but I'll be honest, I'm super blessed. The family's happy, uh, healthy, and just kind of hunkered down in LA, you know, getting to work virtually as best as, best as, uh, as I can and as we all can. But I hope you guys are doing well. How, how are you guys today? Yeah, we're doing we're doing okay, Steve. You know, like us all, I suppose we've pivoted and we've adapted, but we've tried to say we've been innovative. But that's really why we wanted to talk to you because that's your space. So I, I suppose a nice question we'd have for you, Steve, straight off is: with what's happened in the last six to seven months, is there anything through that period that you've nearly learned about yourself or or taken from that period that you're going to lean into and use more of when we do come out of this? Well, that's a really good question that no one's asked me yet. You know, I think the the one thing that I've taken from this is that in anyone who out there listening who has um, a full-time job, kids, a wife or a husband, and uh, a family around them, both of you can certainly relate to this, I know, is like this 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 entire period has has forced us to be at our best as much as we can, but also to, to accept that sometimes we're at our worst and that just happens, right? And you have to accept that. Like there's there are certain days where I'm like literally the best father in the world. And then there are other days that I'm probably the worst father in the world. And have, be, being able to, learning how to cope and learning how to kind of deal with that juxtaposition on a regular basis. And then also just understanding that, hey, this is just the way it is. And you just kind of, you know, you can't wish this away. You just have to 
this this is this is going to take time. This is going to take you know uh, a lot of people hard work in order to 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 kind of you know pull us out of this uh, you know the, the pandemic and and find a um, vaccine for for COVID so that enough people can take. I mean all these things right and and it's out of our control. So I think the thing that I'm probably going to take away from this um, more than anything else is is acceptance of like, there are just some things that I can't control, but what I can control on a daily basis is basically my attitude and then how I approach every single day. That, those, that I think, and then the other thing too, is I'm going to get much better at saying no to things. I think like the one thing that I found is that, you know, because we can talk virtually all the time, there are so many more people who want to just talk virtually all the time, sometimes with like, with really little purpose. Um, I feel sometimes because of kind of our current conditions is we're filling time and filling space. And so I'm getting better now, finally, after probably, you know, after eight months, I'm getting better at saying no to stuff and trying to find more reflective time that I, that I don't think I necessarily had in the first, you know, six months of, of the pandemic. So I think those are the two things I think, you know, and those, no, no, there are definitely some hard skills I think I've probably developed over the last, you know, eight months. I have gotten really good at, you know, this is very cliche, but I, I actually do make a pretty killer, you know, bread at this point. Um, a nice little bag. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, um, and then I have actually, I've gotten much better. I, I practice piano a whole hell of a lot more um, than I used to. Um, but, you know, aside from those things, I, I'm sure there are a few others, but I think it's the perspective of, and of acceptance and how important that is to just kind of getting through problems um, on a regular basis, how important acceptance is to getting through problems might be a good way to kind of, kind of sum that up. Well, we won't ask you to play melody for the listeners just yet, Steve. We'll give you a couple of minutes where you can get your piano ready right beside your mic. Okay. Well, it's literally right here, but you definitely don't want to hear me. Um, <laughs> well, my like bread, but you're a bit far away for the bread. So um, that's all good. Steve, you mentioned about being reflective over this period. It might be a good time now to just give the listeners a bit of an idea about your career to date. Yeah, so my career is uh, is definitely one of uh, kind of winding paths. I think it all makes sense. It makes sense to me, although I think sometimes it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. <laughs> so my so so re- like the 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 kind of like the the quick and down and dirty on me is so I I'm, I'm from the middle part of. Uh, of the United States here from St. Louis, Missouri, which is like literally basically smack dab in the middle of the country. And, you know, grew up in a, in a normal, you know, middle-class Midwestern family and really loved sports when I was a kid, like, like all, you know, blue-blooded Americans just love sports, love baseball, loved, uh, you know, f- American football, loved, you know, played soccer, uh, played ice hockey and a bunch of other sports. Um, and then in, you know, high school played, football and then played uh, track, you know, it was track and field wrestled and a bunch of other things. So sports was always like a big part of my upbringing in my life. But I ended up going to the University of Missouri and got disconnected. It worked in actually the athletic department for a short period of time. And then and then stopped kind of my sports journey for uh, the better part of probably about eight years because um, 9-11 happened. Well, I, st- I stopped in you know, kind of my involvement in sports when I was in college. And then 9-11 happened right after I graduated. Um, so I was just just under a year out of university. 9-11 happened. And I joined the Marine Corps, you know, three days after after the planes hit the towers. Ended up going to the Marine Corps. I was there for um, just under five years and was a uh, deployed to Iraq twice. You know, was fortunate enough to, uh, to have a really great experience, you know, when I was in the Marines. 
coming out of the Marines, I, I was originally going to go work up in Silicon Valley for a software company and instead found out about this program at San Diego State University um, that has sports MBA. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, that sounds like fun. Um, I get my MBA and I learn a little bit about sports and maybe use that as a, as a launching point for working in sports. So I did and ended up meeting the um, the assistant general manager for the San Diego Chargers while I was in, in school. And over in an interview, he basically just asked me, he's like, could you do Moneyball for us? And I, like, I think I just read the Moneyball book maybe, I don't know, like f- six weeks before then. <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, I can do Moneyball for you, of course. And, uh, and so I went, I set up an analytics department for the chargers. And then I was, I was really fortunate because literally my first day on the job, and this is a terrible way to be fortunate, but this is what happens in sports. And this is just sports in a nutshell. Um, my very first day on the job, I got, uh, I met the head coach of the chargers at four thirty, and he was, his name is Marty Schottenheimer and he was fired at five thirty. Wow. Um, I wasn't fired because we had just met, by the way. <laughs> um, but so he gets fired, and then they hire a new head coach 45 days later. His name's Norv Turner. He was uh, uh, won a Super Bowl with the Dallas Cowboys. It was kind of like he's, he's a legendary offensive coordinator and, and a very good head coach in the NFL with a number of different teams over um, the lifespan of his career. He was like a data analytics guy, but he didn't have a data analytics process. Because a lot of it was in his head. Like he's one of these guys, like he's like savants. He's like so smart and he's probably a polymath most likely. Really, really smart guy. Like incredibly intelligent. Does all the crazy math and pattern recognition in his head. And he asked me if I'd come over and basically replicate what I was doing on the on the scouting side and the coaching side. Um, and I did. And I ended up becoming a coach for the for the Chargers. And then, and then I moved from San Diego to Cleveland. <laughs> in, uh, different in, uh, weather, Steve. So I, you know, I remember coming home and telling my wife, "Hey, we're going to move from San Diego to Cleveland," and she just starts crying. Um, yeah, and, uh, Cleveland's a great place. Like, Cleveland is Cleveland is a great place. But coming home and telling your wife that you're going to move from uh, San Diego to Cleveland is a little bit like telling her that you're going to move from Barcelona to Manchester. Right? <laughs> it's just not. It's not a good look. Like this, Manchester is <laughs> a fine city, but it ain't Barcelona. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so, but then I went to the Browns and worked for the Browns for, for just under a year and a half. And I was the head of innovation for the club. I worked as a special assistant for the head coach. And that was an interesting kind of ordeal because um, the new ownership group really wasn't, I don't think they were sure what they wanted to do as a, with the club. And they actually ended up firing the head coach and then the GM and then the president all within, all under like 300 and I think 90 days, something like that. They, they had uh, they fired everybody. So I was a part of that. Hung out for a little bit and then ended up leaving. And this is where I ended up coming over to Europe and spending a lot of time with, uh, with teams over there. Because then what I did post-Browns was I went on what I call my sports sabbatical. And my sports sabbatical entailed visiting you know clubs like Chelsea Football Club, visiting McLaren, visiting Scott Drawer and the guys over at uh, UK Sport, um, visiting, you know, clubs like FC Barcelona, Real Madrid, and just going around and like basically telling my story from the NFL and then hearing other people, other practitioners at clubs tell their stories. And that's practitioners might be everything from like the physiotherapist for FC Porto to, to the head of international scouting for Chelsea 
to like the chief commercial officer for FC Barcelona. So it was a wild ride because it was just a lot of going around and visiting different people and trying to learn what was happening in the sports space, what were some of the struggles for clubs. I replicated that here in the U.S. uh, a little bit too, and then got hired by Sam Hinkey from the Philadelphia uh, 76ers at the time. This is in 2014-15 to help him. uh, I did some consulting with him for uh, two years. And then I worked off and then, and then I basically built a consulting business off the back of my travels and worked with, with a, a number of different entities for, for a number of years. And that basically took me to, that consulting took me to form Gaines Group in 2016, my partner, Dave Anderson. And, and what we do today is we are essentially an innovation strategy design consulting firm. We'll go in and we will work with a um, professional sports team or an entertainment firm, and we will help them build their innovation vehicle and their innovation strategy out. And then we will run and operationalize that through everything from helping them set up an investment fund to helping them create pilots and different projects internally. You know, we, we don't do incubators. We don't do anything like that. It's all primarily, hey, how do you create an actual asset that now you can start to build brand new revenue streams or brand new value for the club? And we do that both on the performance side and also on the commercial side. And, and we've actually created a few new businesses um, off the back of that. And that's, that's primarily what we spend our time doing today. Hopefully all that makes sense. Absolutely, Steve. And like, just to build off that you know, that story, Marines, NFL, NBA, and, and then you take that sabbatical, you know, you take that kind of step, I suppose. What did you learn through that sabbatical? You went over there and you tried to distill your learnings and your experience and your expertise to Real Madrid, to Barcelona, the yeah. biggest team in the world. What did you gain from that experience? What came back the other way that maybe then helped inform how you could even elevate gains group consultancy more and more? internationally in the States and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Right. And, and I'm like probably like three quarters of the way through the book, but now I've been so busy working that the book's probably out of date. But, but the truth is, is that like the, one of the things that I've, I learned is, and this is just a universal thing. Every organization I visited did something incredibly well, did at least one thing. Some, some did like four or five things incredibly well, but every single one, even the organizations that didn't win very, very much, they all did at least one thing really well. And they had something unique about them, right? They had a super strength. Conversely, every single organization had serious gaps and every single organization I visited had blind spots. Every organization in the world believes they're behind every other organization in the world. Even when you talk to like some of the top clubs in the world, they, you know, once you identify something that maybe they don't think they're very good at, they're like, oh, well, you know, the Americans do this so much better than we do. You know, commercialization is like the thing, right? Um, When you look at the way that American clubs have built revenue streams off of everything around the live event, you know, we, we do that very, very well over here, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of people in Europe who, you know, during my journey and then even today would say that that's definitely something that they would like to get better at, right? And that's matured, and that's matured over in, in, other, in other leagues. Meanwhile, like, if you talk to the performance people, um, you know, the general consensus was, like, here in the States, use data analytics incredibly well to select 
players and then to to you know for your match analysis and for actually you know on the field trying to win games whereas in in Europe it was like well sports science is is awesome over there so it was but but the truth is is that there were clubs over in Europe who visited who had more robust and better scouting analytics departments than than here in the states and and vice versa there were teams here in the states that had better sports science programs than people that who were lauded as like some of the greatest like sports science like teams on the planet i'd go visit them and be like oh, this is okay but you know this is this isn't it's quite as great as I, I actually probably was thinking and so the thing is is that that every no one's no one's truly that that much further ahead of other people although there are some clubs that are clearly ahead and then everyone's not not so far behind either i think if, if you're a club out there and you could integrate and actually really like look at the what your what your deficiencies are you can actually make up some headway on other clubs pretty quickly as long as you just throw some resource at it and i think that was one of the things that i learned the most was that all the problems are basically the same all the capability sets are basically the same and it's it's the cross connection and the learning amongst all those teams that if you were able to like get a viewpoint into all these different sports, you can you can basically mine all that and kind of take like a, a greatest hits to to all these different clubs and kind of build out new value with them. And that that's basically what we did, right? And that's basically what I did. I just kind of codified everything I learned and and then figured out ways to really dig deep with some of these teams. Very good. I think you'll have an acute appreciation for this next point in terms of analytics. Oftentimes when we look at data, there's a focus on data collection and data synthesis, and there's not as much focus on turning it or transforming it into a form that we can communicate or build something from. How did you manage to take all of this information that you've learned from all them widespread clubs and different sports and turn it into maybe a few keystone areas that you could impact with new clients or new clubs that you were going in to try and impart some of that knowledge? So, so the key there for, for us and for me specifically is to really dig in with the, the new client, new partner, right? Is to really understand like their day-to-day and really, really dig in with them. Because every single culture is a little bit different across all these teams. And you only really get and learn like really what their hardcore issues are if you, if you really spend time with them. Sports... Above all, I mean, I've because I've I've worked in like high tech. I've worked with you know different companies in Silicon Valley. I've worked with investors. I've worked with you know large brands trying to get into sports. People who work in sports, especially people who work in on the performance side of sport, are just really are typically just really really good people who like to just talk and share information and learn. Right, a lot of sports coaches would just end up going to be teachers if they weren't actually you know, working on grass. And so a lot of times it's like literally just sitting down with them and talk. It, that, that, that's, that's the secret is like sitting down and talking with them, understanding how you can frame things up in a way that makes sense for their specific culture. I think the way that I think about it is one of the main things you want to find with every single club is really understand what their core strength is and then also understand what their core constraints are. All right. And let me let me give you a I'll give you a really, really example of that. So one of the clubs I spent some time with um, was uh, um, Athletic Club in uh, in Bilbao, Spain. And when you look at Athletic Club, you know, they are like FC Barcelona and Real Madrid. You know, they are socio driven. They are they've never been relegated and they are 
an amazing club when you really kind of look from the outside. When you look at their record, right? They 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 do well. They they make it to the Copa del Rey on a regular basis. They compete for the league every now and then. They're not you know not not necessarily like they're you know top ten on a regular basis, right? And but the interesting thing is like their super strength is the attention to detail and the kind of the capability and resource that they put into athlete development and athlete. And the reason why they do that is because of a massive constraint that they have. And the massive constraint that they have is that they play Basque players and specifically Spanish Basque players, basically. Right. And, and, uh, and I know some of the listeners out there look at it and say, well, well, there's some, lo- there's a couple loopholes that they use, but they play Basque players. Right. And they're a very culturally prideful team that really wants to play players who um, grow up and come from their from their region um, and then develop those players over time. So when you start talking about like actually like basically competing against the rest of European football and and La Liga and competing with the likes of FC Barcelona and Real Madrid who are scouting from the entire globe versus you're scouting literally from just your backyard, a place that's literally I mean the same size from a landmass perspective as Los Angeles County and Santa Barbara combined, but has the population of basically like the six neighborhoods around me right now in Los Angeles. I mean, the fact that you're only pulling players from that pool, that's a massive constraint, but they've built like a super strength off of that. And every team can do the same thing, right? But a lot of teams don't fully understand what their super strength is. And a lot of teams don't understand what their constraints are. So when we go in and we work with teams, a lot of times when I start talking about synthesizing information and learning lessons from Athletic Club, from Real Madrid, from McLaren, from Mercedes F1, if I'm going to if I'm going to impart any of that, it has to be in the context of something that will make sense to them and a story and a narrative that will make sense to that team. And oftentimes that's only after I've really sat down with them, spent some time just talking to them one on one. And we really get to the meat of what's their strength, what are their core strengths and what are their core constraints. That's really good, Steve. Just, just want to tap into this knowledge a little bit more. As physiotherapists and sports medicine, we often, you know, talk about best practice, but really kind of what's the next practice? Where, who are the people that are really cutting edge and trying to find the next thing to do? And when we look up your profile, you talk a little bit about new business around existing business and that kind of recalibration. I suppose the question is, who in the world is impressing you with innovation and why? Good question. So I'm going to answer in the, in the context of sports, just because that's what I think, I think really what you want to know and, and probably what your listeners are most interested in. You know, I, I look at, I look at entities like, oh, I mentioned McLaren earlier, like McLaren, you know, F1 and McLaren Auto, they had this thing called McLaren Applied Technologies. It's basically a spin-out company that was built around all the technology and all the engineering they were doing for F1. They had to build a simulator. They had to build, you know, better models for, you know, the different racetracks. And now they could take some of that engineering talent that they're devoting towards, you know, building better chassis for McLaren, for actual McLaren cars. And they could take some of the talent and, and, and knowledge and know-how for like how they, how they try and win F1 races. Um, and now they can create a company around that talent. All right. And then go solve really hard problems in everything from like healthcare to oil and gas. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think 
when you look at teams that have the capability to do that, you probably look at like Mercedes, you look at, you know, other entities. I think, I think Mercedes is an incredibly in, inventive and innovative F1 team right now. I know they're uh, one of their principles. And, uh, and I think when, when I look at like their approach to not only their culture, but also to their process for how they build out new, uh, new, new products for the, for the team to win more races, I, I look at like what they've done is, is really, really impressive. I would also look at, you know, other entities like, I mean, here in our backyard and one of our business partners, you know, the Los Angeles Dodgers, you know, we've worked with them quite a bit. Um, I think they're very, um, very innovative and they're innovative because they, they don't just throw, you know, money at problems. Like I think a lot of people kind of assume they do. Um, They throw a lot of thoughtful intent and, and a lot of know-how and a lot of IP at it. I mean, when you look at one of the one of the areas like that's this right up your guys' alley that I think is going to evolve over the course of the next fifteen years or so, is we've gone through this wave of analytics of like you know looking at how you scout and how you pick the right players for your for your team, and then it was like okay, so then positioning like how do you actually use it in tactics. Right. In, in, in European football, it's all about tactics. Like how do we use analytics to in, for our match analysis? The next big wave is going to be athlete development. I think I think the next big wave is going to be how do you create universally superior athletes and then make sure that those athletes fit your tactics or that your tactics fit those athletes. Right. I think you just got to watch Liverpool play right now. And understand that they are actually changing their tactics based upon the athleticism of some of their players. And that's part of the reason why there's a gap between Liverpool and everybody else in the English Premier League right now. Someone else is going to figure that out at some point. Go out there and make sure that they have damn fine players. Well, damn fine players and damn fine athletes kind of at their uh, at their disposal. So I think I think both of those entities are doing a really great job. I look at also, I mean, there are, there are a lot of different folks who do some really great micro innovations. You know, UK sport in your neighborhood is always top notch in the way that they think about the space and in some of the smaller programs that they put together in order to try and win Olympic medals. And I mean, GBR has outpunched its weight on a consistent basis for the last, you know, two, three Olympic cycles. So, so you know that they're doing something right. And then when it, on the commercial side, you know, of sports, I think I really like the stuff that the NBA does. They do a lot of experimentation around how they deliver the fan experience and how they deliver, you know, experimenting on Twitch to, you know, some of the things that they've done with some of their, you know, OTT work. I think those those are just some of the ones off the top of my head that I think are doing some some really great work. But there are a lot of folks out there doing some some creative things right now. Some really great examples there. I'm just interested about when it's often easy to see a team or a company or an organization will have one of their values as written down anyway, as innovation. I'm curious about when you're looking to dig deeper, as you mentioned, what really separates the good companies that are truly innovative versus the ones who are maybe just more superficial, just saying it almost. Yeah. And a lot of that comes back to intent, right? And like, it's a little bit like every single team in the NFL or major league baseball or the NBA, they all have like every single coach at the top of his, like, you know, he puts on his, like his vision statement for the team, right? And it's at the top, like it's always win a championship, right? And it's like, no kidding, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's, 
that's a table stakes. Everyone wants to go win a championship. That's not a vision, right? It's like the process that helps you get there is the most important thing. And it's the same thing with innovation because every single team says, oh, oh, we, we want to be innovative and we want to, we're, we're going to be innovative. But I think what a lot of teams don't do the hard work on doing is really thinking about how are we going to create a culture of innovation and an actual strategy and process for innovation. And I think like what we try and encourage people to do is we'll sit down and we'll look and we'll say, okay, so you can, you can be organically innovative, right? Or you can be structurally innovative, right? And what I mean by that is some teams are just naturally predisposed to doing new things and, and being organically innovative because of the people who are running the organization, the way they think, the way they create, the way they, they develop teams and the way they disseminate information. The San Francisco 49ers are a lot like that. So the San Francisco 49ers, they have, they have an investment arm, but they don't have like an innovation vehicle. They don't need one. And they don't need one because Parag Mate, who runs the team, he has created, he has hired people and he has created basically an, an organic innovation engine that is constantly looking for two things. How do we make more money as a club and how do we ensure that we win more games as a club? And so the way that they approach their everyday job is through that lens, is through the creation of something new and trying to find, you know, cross connections to create competitive advantages. And they're willing to test things out and they're willing just to try things out, right? It's very organic for them. And, and a lot of that has to do with basically it's being driven by an ethos, a philosophy that's, that's, that's part and parcel with the ownership group and the leadership group. Other teams who probably have like slightly more rigid, less creative leadership. Honestly, like they can't pull that off. They just can't pull that off, but they can still be innovative. They just have to now think through, okay, well, how do we create an engine or a vehicle to be innovative and to make sure that we are actually, that we value this. And that's where I think like you can then, you know, in, in like what most teams do now is this is the thing that the, the Dodgers were the first ones to do, which was to create an accelerator, right? I don't know if the accelerator model is actually the best model, but that's what a lot of teams will do. They'll do an accelerator or they were at one point not where they'll do like a you know lab or some other thing like that. I think a lot of times there's a little bit too much mimicking and a little bit too much copycatting in the space and not enough like really thoughtful dissection. Again, going back to what your strengths and constraints are as an organization, because if you understand those, then it'll lead you to a path of understanding whether or not you can be organic or structurally. And if you need to be structural, how do you actually create that asset and that thing or the process and the system and a strategy for being innovative? Because being innovative too, and here's the other thing, and I'll, and I'll end with this, is being innovative means failing all the time, nonstop, right? It's, it means failing. I mean, it means learning from those failures. And I'll be honest, there, there ain't a lot of ownership groups and there aren't a lot of leaders in sports who are actually really great at accepting that failure. I think part of the thing about sports is it's as, you know, it's sometimes viewed as a zero sum game, right? And and when you lose, you you really hate that. And and people don't like to fail, you know, certainly publicly too. So I think that that kind of holds people back sometimes is they're not really willing to invest in in the, the 10,000 failures you need for like one massive success. And I think that that's like part of the part of the magic of like people who can do it organically is they kind of accept that and they make that just part of the job description.
And it's like, it took a lot of failures before Edison created the light bulb. Look, Steve, you've learned so much and distilled it to so many people about you know, high performance, about culture, about strategy, about innovation, about all these, I suppose, pillars as to where you excel at and try to help people understand. Just let's take paint a picture for a minute and say you're walking down the street. Say actually you're back in San Diego beside North Turner at the start of that career for you as, as a coach, and you could hand a younger version of yourself a little post-it into the pocket. Before you went on and embarked on the rest of that career, what would you say to a younger version of yourself? Oh, man, that's a really great question. So I, you guys, you guys ask hard ones. This is not a softball. <laughs> we, we were prepping for you, Steve. Yeah, you guys are purely Irish. Uh, Irishmen ask <laughs> toughest questions they don't never beat around the bush i would i would i would like to be more thoughtful than what i'm probably going to be right now and so i'd like to actually think about it because i would assume that i have have really good time but here's the thing i think i would definitely tell them is oftentimes in sports when you are brand new to the team brand new to the environment brand new to the to the organization you end up saying yes in in times where you should probably say no and and you also sometimes don't exert like kind of your your knowledge as much as as maybe you should. And like in the NFL, like that's actually like normally seen as like a sign of like a good employee for someone who's younger. I, I, I should have been more assertive when I was, I think when I was with the Chargers. I think that was a, a real miss for a couple of reasons. One, like I came out of the Marine Corps. And it's like I had I had I had a hell of a, a body of work that I had from a leadership perspective, from a, like, how do you create organizations? You know, you talk about structure and, and some of those things, like we didn't have as much when I was with, when I was with the chargers, um, we had great structure, but there were things, there were tweaks that, that I know I could have made at the time. And I didn't, I didn't, and I didn't necessarily, cause I didn't feel like it was my place necessarily to, to, to like make that um, because I was new to football. I was new to sports. I was new to all these other things. And so I think the thing I would have told myself is don't be afraid to break things, including breaking, you know, momentarily kind of your, because I was trying to protect, I was protecting my job to a certain degree. Right. And I was protecting what, what I felt was like the right way to, to kind of start my career. And I felt like I probably could have like broken some more glass and, and broken a few more things and, and asked for permission less, asked for forgiveness more often. That I probably would have, I'd probably give myself permission to, uh, to be a little bit more contrarian and to be a little bit more outspoken in some of the things that I think we should have, have done. I think that's, that's what I would have given. And, and I think that would have put me on a better pathway long-term because that's one of the things you have to learn when you become an entrepreneur. Because don't forget, like I was not an entrepreneur before I left the Browns and left the NFL full time, right? I didn't. I, 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 you have to learn how to become an entrepreneur. And I started my entrepreneurship journey when I, in 2014, you know, 15 is when I started at it. In the first three years that you're an entrepreneur, you're a terrible entrepreneur. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, this is all entrepreneurs. I mean, Learning how to be an entrepreneur is is incredibly difficult, right? And and no matter there's so many people out there like, oh, I want to go start a startup. Well, the reason why most startups fail is because the people who start them wanted to go start a startup, and it was the first time that they did it, and they sucked at it. Um, <laughs> and so I sucked at being an entrepreneur for a good solid three, four years, right? I feel like I could have started the process of being an entrepreneur a little bit earlier if I kind of treated my career like that when I was with in the NFL. 
Excellent. Some great message there. What I'd like to do is just ask you the, the final wrap-up question for myself, and it's one that we ask all of the guests that come on the show. It's what does high performance mean to you, Steve? So high performance is definitely, I mean, God, man, such a, such a, such a, such a tough, it gets used in so many different ways by so many different people to kind of explain their place in the world and, and what they do. You know, for every, cause I mean, I think if you talk to someone, you know, about high performance who comes from the psychology realm, they immediately identify high performance as being like their domain. Right. And if you talk to a sports scientist, they immediately, immediately, you know, say, well, high performance is my domain. The thing that's interesting about high performance is that we end up kind of defining it based upon our own viewpoint and, and aperture in which we see the world. Right. Whatever the lens we see the world and we start to identify high performance from that. My definition of high performance, though, I think is is a little bit contrarian to that, where I think people who are truly high performers are people who have fundamental control over who they are as human beings and understand how they're developing themselves to give themselves full agency over whatever it is they want to have full agency over. I see someone who is a, a writer in, uh, you know, I've got a friend of mine who's, who's, a, who's a writer in, in Wyoming, right? And unless you read his books, you've never heard of him. And he lives a very, very simple life. And if you were to ask anyone in sports, is this person a high performer? They would probably say, oh, well, no, it's just, he's, he's an okay middling writer. And he's, those, but it's, he's doing exactly what he wants. I look at, you know, the way that people like really kind of set targets for themselves and the way that people who are like really happy in, in who they are as human beings and they go to work every single day, whatever their job is, doesn't matter what their job is. And they feel like they've done a, a, a job well done. To me, I think you can make a case that that's high performance. I don't know. It's it's hard for me because I, I, I you know, I, I read a lot of books about about the early days of the NASA program here in here in the United States, right? And it's amazing to see the winding routes that a lot of the astronauts kind of got to going on the moon, right, or, or to getting to the moon or going up into space. And and you would say that all of them, if you just asked them blankly, is are those astronauts high performers? You would say yes, but if you go back and you like look at all of their like kind of backgrounds, some of them actually have like the exact opposite backgrounds that you would say is like a high performer inside of inside of sports. So I think high performance actually in the end of the day always comes out comes out to be like defined by whatever the outcome you want as a human being that you've achieved that. That's probably like a, a candy ass answer to a certain degree and a little bit of a softball answer, but I, I really do probably actually believe that. And mainly because I think everyone just takes the term high performance and kind of just bends it to whatever definition and view of the world that they particularly have at that moment. Steve, we'd love that. Thank you very much, Steve, for taking the time to speak to the two of us today. We understand you're, you're a busy guy. We're both really interested and intrigued to see what's next. What's the next chapter for you? And, um, and to just use that word, finish the book. You have two people over here that are going to buy it. Looking forward to, to learning a bit more from you. And just thanks again for spending the time to speak to us today. No, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. 
others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.